Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, warm welcome to all our first movers around the globe. Fantastic to have you with us on this Earth Day Eve. We just ahead, a truly world-class program, she says, of planetary proportions among today's earthly matters. Elon Musk, lightning rod. Twitter begins removing blue check marks from users who won't pay a monthly fee. But some celebrities getting a controversial free pass. A full report on Musk's latest tweet storm coming up. Also, the tech earnings waterfall, a cascade of important results in the days ahead from Alphabet, Amazon, Microsoft and Meta. All this, of course, after Tesla's Q1 disappointment on Wednesday. Plus, the debt ceiling cliff, the gulf between Republicans and Democrats widening the default date when the U.S. government runs out of cash, getting closer, perhaps as soon as June. And the glacier that seems to be U.S.-China relations. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warning in a major speech that U.S. national security trumps its economic interests amid this growing superpower rivalry. We'll discuss the frosty state of affairs with Eurasia and G-Zero Media founder Ian Bremmer. Earth Day, an increasingly important day, too, for multinational corporations. IKEA's U.S. CEO will discuss his firm's dramatic new expansion stateside, as well as its planet-friendly policies. And CNN's climate correspondent Bill Weir will report on exciting new efforts to reduce global warming, or as he calls it, how to unscrew a planet, literally. And speaking of planets, a bit of a a flat Earth type of day for U.S. and European investors. Amid ongoing concerns, I think, about weakening global growth, new jobless claims, that's unemployment claims here in the United States, above expectations for a fourth week in a row. Fresh layoff news this week, too, from Meta, Disney and Amazon-owned grocery train chain Whole Foods 2. And oil set to fall some 6% this week amid all the concerns about slowing growth. Brent over in Europe, in fact, down 22% in price terms this past year. Now, a busy show as always, and we begin this hour with the latest from Sudan. Leaders of the Sudanese army have agreed to a three-day ceasefire proposed by the opposition paramilitary group, the RSF. It coincides with Eid, the Muslim holiday celebrating the end of Ramadan. So far, more than 400 people have lost their lives in the conflict, according to the World Health Organization. And Nema Al-Bagir joins us now to discuss. Nema, as we've seen now on a number of occasions, proposing a ceasefire Mm. and adhering to it are very different things. What have we seen so far? Well, on this, the first day of the Muslim festival of Eid, there didn't seem to be much um, relief from the fighting first thing this morning. There are now signs that perhaps the army is hopeful that a ceasefire could be agreed or put in place. But um, most of the people on the ground in Sudan have lost hope when it comes to these, um, these periods of respite. This fighting feels very entrenched. And evidence that we have uncovered, Julia, points to 
Russian support, support from the Russian proxy militia Wagner reaching the RSF, which will serve to only further entrench these positions. Have a look at this. The Sudanese and the Libyan armies celebrated a successful joint operation Wednesday, April 19th, near the remote desert border between Libya and Sudan, having captured the Shefrilet garrison, belonging to the rival Sudanese paramilitary rapid support forces, the RSF. But why is this military base so important, given how far it is from the existential fight in Sudan's capital, Khartoum? Because CNN can reveal that the fight in Khartoum is being influenced by what was happening at that garrison, a Russian resupply campaign backed by a key regional player aimed at turning the tide in Sudan's war in favor of the RSF, who have been a key recipient of Russian training and military aid. In collaboration with All Eyes on Wagner, a research group focusing on Russian proxy Wagner, CNN investigated the group's current presence in Libya. You can see here on April 16th, one day after the fighting began in Khartoum, a Russian Aleutian 76 transport plane at the Al-Jufra base in Libya, previously identified by American intelligence as a Wagner base. Three days later, this same plane is spotted by flight tracker aviation expert Gurdjian, coming back from the Russian airbase in Latakia, Syria, before returning to the Libyan airbase in Khadim. Images of that same plane began circulating online April 17th, heading in the direction of Sudan. Sudanese and regional sources tell CNN that weaponry was airdropped to the RSF within that time frame, April 15th to April 18th, to the Chevrolet garrison during a period of fierce fighting boosting the RSF. The Al-Khadim and Al-Jufra bases, where the Wagner planes departed from in Libya, are under the control of Field Marshal Khalifa Haftar, who commands territory in the east of Libya. Haftar and the commander of the Rapid Support Forces, Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, a.k.a. Hemetti, have in common strategic alliances. One with Wagner, who Haftar is hosting in his territory in Libya, and whom a previous CNN investigation exposed as working with Hemetti to extract Sudanese gold. A second with the United Arab Emirates, who tapped Hemeti to send forces to the conflict in Yemen and backed Haftar in the fighting in Libya. What does it all mean for the ongoing misery and conflict in Sudan? It means that both a regional, Libyan general Haftar, and a global player, Russia, are putting their thumbs on the scale, which raises the stakes for the region, for the global balance of power, and for the people of Sudan, caught in the crossfire. Field Marshal Haftar and Wagner did not respond to our requests for comment. An RSF spokesperson told us that they have not received support from Libya and or from uh, Wagner, although he acknowledged that they have in the past. Julia. Mm. Follow the money, find some of the answers. Mm. And in this case, the fear is it extends the conflict. Um, Nema, great mm. work. Thank you so Thank much. You. Okay. A Russian warplane has dropped a bomb on its own city. It created a large crater in the city of Belgorod near the Ukrainian border. The Russian military calls it, quote, an emergency release. Ben Weedwin joins us now on this. Ben, even um, adjusting perhaps for a lost in translation problem here, there's oddities. Surely if you had to do an emergency release of a weapon, you would release it in some kind of safe mode. But this appeared to explode. Also, you try and get away from a population centre. It's odd. 
the whole thing is odd. Uh, it happened at 15 minutes past uh, 10 p.m. in this town, uh, Bolgorod, a city of 400,000 people just 25 or 40 kilometers uh, from the Ukrainian border. Now, it's odd that, A, it, it was dropped in the middle of the town. Uh, it's not clear what kind of bomb it is. And normally, if they're going to be releasing their bombs, uh, pilot in an emergency situation, he'll release all of them. So lots of questions uh, about this incident. Uh, this is a town that, of course, has been a major staging area for Russian forces operated in Ukraine. Uh, only two people were injured, according to the mayor of Bolgorod, two women. But as we saw in that CCTV video, the bomb fell on a sidewalk by this very busy road in the middle of town, causing one car just to fly up in the air and land on the, on the roof of a nearby building. Uh, the Ukrainians, uh, an official reacted saying we should not take pleasure in this sort of incident happening in Russia. But certainly it is a case of what goes around comes around. Julia? Mm, ben Meadwin, thank you so much for that. Blue check marks are disappearing from Twitter profiles around the world as Elon Musk rolls out an $8 a month subscription service for account verification. You can see the tick mark there on his account. But if you look at my account, it's been removed. And despite paying to get it back a few hours ago, I'm just waiting to see how long it takes. Um, so far, no check mark, but we'll keep you posted. Um, Claire Duffy joins me on this. And of course, Claire, we've been waiting for this now for many months. April 20th, a date that we know that Elon Musk likes, was the date where these things are removed. And now we wait and see who pays, who doesn't, who leaves. And it's clearly creating some misinformation concerns and debate. That's right, Julia. It is sort of chaos on Twitter this morning. Last night, we started to see the blue checks disappear, uh, including from major accounts like Kim Kardashian, Bill Gates, even former President Donald Trump. Uh, but there was also a lot of confusion on the platform. There were blue checks disappearing from government agency accounts, with the, which the company now appears to be scrambling to sort of fix. And you already have people, you know, trying to trying to impersonate major figures on the platform. And this is the big problem with this change, is that we can no longer really trust that the blue check means I am who I say I am. What it now means is I've now paid $8 a month for the subscription platform. And so it really sort of potentially undermines the trust that people have in this platform that, that what they're seeing is real and, and, and it's been authenticated by the company. Yeah, you're making a brilliant point. And I think the key here, at least for me, is that there are two separate points. The blue check mark needs to represent something. Twitter is a utility. You shouldn't necessarily be able to free ride, get it for free and use it. So the utility function of Twitter perhaps deserves a subscription. Should that be tied to a blue check mark that provides some degree of assurance that you're following someone that you think you are and it's not someone who's pretending to be that person? They're two separate I think that's issues. That's exactly the, the issue. And, you know, Elon Musk makes this point that Twitter is a utility and people should be paying for it. But a, a lot of these high profile creators who are now losing their blue check marks and are concerned that they're going to be impersonated are saying, wait a minute, I bring a lot of utility to this platform. I say things here that people want to read. I bring audience to this platform. And a lot of other companies pay creators to create content. Uh, and now Elon Musk is wanting these major creators to pay to be there in the first place and to be creating content for the platform. Uh, and so I think it will be interesting to see how many people decide to stick around after this. Yeah, allow creators to monetize themselves off the platform and they can more than earn their $8 back. <laughs> Duffy, thank you. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about this, I'm thinking, over the next couple of days. Thank you.
All right, something else which would be flying into Elon Musk's in-tray, a claim for damages. Take a look at this. The owner of this minivan clearly having a bad day after debris from the SpaceX Starship launch in Texas rained down on a car park. The rocket itself, of course, suffered a similar fate, exploding in midair in what SpaceX described as a rapid, unplanned disassembly, a.k.a. explosion. Welcome back to First Move. We return to Sudan, where the paramilitary group RSF announced a three-day ceasefire to coincide with the Eid holiday. The army says it will observe it too, but only if the RSF abides by the truce. The army has been locked in a fight with the RSF since last Saturday. At least 413 people have lost their lives so far. The World Food Programme warns if the fighting continues, millions could be reduced to hunger. Tens of thousands of people have already fled Sudan. Joining us now is Ian Remmer, president and founder of G-Zero Media and the Eurasia Group. He's also the author of The Power of Crisis, How Three Threats and Our Response Will Change the World. Ian, great to have you with us. Much to discuss, but I do want to begin with Sudan. Your thoughts, analysis, assessment at this stage? There's clearly lots of foreign nationals there too. Yes, there are. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it, it's very difficult because they've had, this is three ceasefires they've announced. Uh, none of them have held so far. Um, the logistics on the ground uh, are not conducive at all to getting uh, foreign nationals out. And the Americans are trying to set up right now support from some of the countries uh, that have more influence there, like Egypt, uh, like the United Arab Emirates. But this is not a matter of a few days. It's probably, if we're lucky, uh, a matter of weeks and uh, clearly dangerous operations we're looking at that, that does risk the lives of these foreign nationals while they're there. Yeah, I mean, a lot of lives at risk at this stage. What's the danger of spillover effects to the region, whether it's Chad, um, Eritrea, for example? How concerned are you about that? Um, a, a little bit. I mean, in the sense that, uh, you know, we have uh, a lot of uh, there, there are there's radicalism. Uh, there is uh, there are refugees that we're talking about. Um, there's a lack of security um, in the region. Um, and uh, and whenever you have the potential for significant famine, and, and this could easily get to a matter of not just hundreds of thousands, but millions, um, then you have you have poorer governance uh, in that, uh, that that that's going to affect the region. So uh, it's not geopolitically. This is not like Syria. Right. We don't have people mm. that are streaming into Europe. Uh, none of the G7 countries have direct interests on the ground in Sudan. Uh, so, you know, we're not going to see anything that's driving headlines, frankly, for the Western media. Uh, but in the region, it's very significant. Yeah, which is why we'll keep talking about it. But to your point, unfortunately, yeah. uh, geopolitically, people's eyes are elsewhere. Um, I want to get your take on um, Janet Yellen, Treasury Secretary's comments on China, where she effectively said, look, uh, protecting national security interests may mean economic trade-offs, may actually trump economic trade-offs. Who was the messaging to? And um, what do you think the goal is for the United States with China at this moment? Uh, the, it's interesting. The messaging is not to the Chinese. Uh, mm. The messaging is to the private sector in the United States, most of which is more aligned with France uh, than they are with Washington. Um, and, and this is the U.S. government. And Janet Yellen has been in many ways uh, the most dovish on China in the entire cabinet. She's the one saying, look, we can't decouple. We have to engage. But she's trying to say there's going to be costs. And American multinationals, American bankers need to understand that it's not going to be business as usual with China going forward. So, 
you know, this is this is not the rah-rah globalization that you've heard from the Americans for decades now. It's a very different political orientation towards what will soon be the largest economy in the world. It's interesting that you say they're more aligned with um, France's thinking, because, of course, we had Emmanuel Macron there uh, creating what felt like significant waves standing in Beijing and suggesting that, that Europe shouldn't blindly follow the United States path with regards uh, the treatment of China over Taiwan. Ian, what did you make of those comments? And, and do you think there are other world leaders, not just in the corporate sector that you're talking about, that, that quietly also think um, we need perhaps a more strategic plan to handle this? Uh, quietly, of course, is the point. Mm. Macron is the one Western leader that is uh, saying this stuff publicly, and that does undermine the transatlantic uh, relationship to a degree. Uh, but, you know, you and I talk a lot about Russia-Ukraine in, in the last year. And, of course, the fact is that the West, uh, broadly defined, is almost 100 percent aligned in their Russia policy. On China, they are not. The Americans see China from a government perspective through a much more national security lens and therefore it feels more zero sum. There are no other countries in the West that feel that way. They, they all want a hedge. They want more access to American muscle, but they want more access at the same time to the Chinese market. And if you have 95% alignment on Russia, you have maybe 60% alignment on China. And that, that, that tension is gonna grow over time if the United States keeps testing the floor of existing U.S.-China relations. Do you think the United States is quietly preparing for some form of conflict over Taiwan? And perhaps that's part of the sort of imbalance in the relationship, perhaps, between Europe and the United States. As you said, there's economic interests, there's strategic interests, but there's certainly a sense of greater alarm, I think, in the United States about where this may lead. Was it Chekhov that said if you introduce a gun in the first, uh, you know, sort of act of a play that by the end it's going to be used? Right. Um, I mean, I do think the Americans and the Chinese are preparing for conflict, not because they think there's going to be conflict, but because they feel like the relationship is getting worse and this is a key flashpoint. And so in case of any eventuality, they need to have the military capabilities. They need to have the technological hedges on semiconductors. And of course, the more both sides do that and dig in, the more likelihood the last act of the play is going to end in tears. Yeah, that's how accidents happen. It also happened in the same week as we got news of the intelligence leaks in the United States. Spying, for what we read and can believe, there's obviously been suggestions from governments around the world that there's not necessarily full truth or inaccuracies in some of these reports. Spying on allies, spying on foreign adversaries as well. Ian, what's your take on that? And do you think there's less intelligence sharing, less trust as a result of this breach? Uh, no, no, I think there's an enormous amount of intelligence sharing, again, because the risks are so proximate. Um, I mean, you know, you've got nuclear buildup, you've got all sorts of espionage, you have asymmetric attacks and warfare coming from countries like Russia, like Iran. So the necessity of sharing that intelligence is going up and up. But of course, lots of individuals have access to it. Now here you're talking about uh, some 21-year-old junior IT staffer uh, in the Massachusetts Air National Guard uh, not working with the Russians or the Chinese or anyone else, just showing off with some of his friends. So, I mean, the surprise is that this happens as rarely as it does, <sighs> at least in a public way. I, I will also say that um, on the basis of my conversations with leaders um, in the G7, uh, none of what I saw from the intelligence leaks was particularly new um, and and was surprising. So, in other words, 
uh, th this was mostly known uh, by by almost everybody out there. And the idea that, well, this is disinformation because the Russians happen to have changed a few of the slides to make it look like they're losing fewer troops, the Ukrainians are losing more. Uh, that doesn't change the fact that this is actually real intelligence and does reflect the actual disposition um, of, uh, of analysis uh, of the Americans and others uh, as to uh, the state of play uh, around Russia, Ukraine right now. It puts Ukraine under more pressure because there is there is the fact that the Americans don't actually think that the Ukrainians can take much more land. And if that's true, then at some point the Americans are going to be shifting towards a how do we start negotiations position, which, by the way, is where the French are right now and where the Chinese have been for some time. That's going to be interesting because it's very hard to say that publicly. Yeah. And how does that play into the much anticipated now spring offensive from Ukraine? And, of course, the timing of uh, the NATO secretary general visiting for the first time, of course, this week, too. Yeah. And the Hungarian uh, leader, Viktor Orban, saying, what? What do you mean that, you know, Ukraine is going to join NATO? Yeah. Well, I mean, geez, you, you know, they already invited Ukraine to join NATO, but they invited them under American pressure and without a plan. Um, and it has to be agreed by every country. That's why Turkey has had such a significant role in potentially vetoing Finland and Sweden, why it's taken a long time. So if Hungary decides they never want Ukraine in, Ukraine never gets in. Let's recognize that, right? I mean, it's not as if the Americans can just decide this unilaterally. Um, but I, I think what's more important here is the level of commitment to bringing the Ukrainians into the EU. Uh, it's the level of commitment to providing real-time defense support um, and intelligence support for the Ukrainians, none of which they would have gotten if Russia hadn't invaded Ukraine. So, of course, the Ukrainians have lost land. They've lost a lot of people. They've been terrorized. Eight million refugees. That never comes back. But Ukraine as a country will come out of this much stronger than they actually went in. And that's, of course, all because of Putin's invasion. Yeah, closer to the EU and closer to NATO, whatever the timing looks like on that. Um, yeah. Final question. Um, much discussion today about a announcement next week by Joe Biden that he will run for president once again in, in 2024. Um, is that what you expect for him to run unopposed? Sure. And is it a 2024 Trump-Biden presidential election? Well, you know, Marianne Williamson has already uh, announced her candidacy, which, of course, does mean that Biden will be running unopposed. Uh, those two things are essentially the same. Uh, I'm sorry. It's true. She's you couldn't help yourself. Uh, I couldn't help myself. But, you know, I mean, I think no one else is talking about her. So why not give her some airtime? Um, yeah, Biden's running. Uh, and uh, this is, it's been pre-announced pretty strongly. And, you know, people still talk about his age, but he is an incumbent president. And if an incumbent president wants to run in the United States, uh, under almost any circumstances, that's the strongest candidate you're going to have. So the Democrats, are, any serious Democrat is going to clear a lane. We've already heard that from Governor Gretchen Whitmer. We've heard that from Governor Gavin Newsom. I mean, all of the important Democrats that would be credible in this uh, electoral cycle are not going to run against Biden. Uh, the bigger news, of course, is that Trump is still way ahead of everybody on the GOP side. Um, and the uh, the arrest, uh, the arraignment, I mean, all of that has only made him stronger. Uh, and uh, and so, I, you know, if you're betting a person here, uh, you do think that this is going to be Biden, Trump yet again. And that doesn't say great things internationally about the state of American democracy right now. Yeah. And the sort of number two behind him, Ron DeSantis, who we've talked a little bit about um, on this show, is currently in a fight with Mickey Mouse. 
um, which I think is very sort of confusing for, for most people. But also seems was that, to be was relatively that a euphemism confident. for Donald Trump, or you meant that? In terms of <laughs> oh, wow, you're on form today, <laughs> Disney specifically. Um, but also seemingly quite confident that, that he can eventually get the nomination. What do you expect there, and how does that work? Uh, look, I, I think that DeSantis has gotten an enormous amount of money uh, from very big, deep-pocketed Republican donors. Uh, and this is the establishment that doesn't like Trump, that thinks and has seen that the Republicans have lost three times now as a party and is getting more fragmented uh, because of Trump. They lost the Senate uh, because of Trump in the special Georgia elections. They just got thumped in the midterms. Did they, they underperform because of Trump and because of the Trump candidates that were out there that performed very badly? So they don't want to see that. But of course, you know, if you're Trump and you're running a grievance-based campaign, the fact that people with a lot of money don't want the average Republican voter in the base to support Trump is a feature, not a bug for Trump's mm. campaign. So it does make him stronger. It is part of why the anti-establishment forces in the U.S. continue to do so well. I mean, if Trump didn't exist right now, the base would have to invent him because there is an enormous amount of anger in the United States for the un for those that perceive themselves some some in reality and some in social media and conspiracy theory um, to be truly underprivileged. Yes, we're no longer in Disneyland, that's for sure. Ian Bremer, no, always a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. President and founder of G Zero Media and Eurasia Group. We'll speak soon. Have a great weekend. Okay, coming up after the break, can you follow instructions? Do you like cheap hot dogs? Have you got a collection of screwdrivers and endless amounts of patience? IKEA is assembling a major expansion in the United States. The CEO is here to build his case for the company's U.S. future. And it may contain some small parts. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. And a little bit of a Friday feeling on Wall Street. U.S. stocks little changed in early trade. The Dow currently on track for its first drop in four weeks. Goldman Sachs, however, out with soothing words on one of Wall Street's main concerns, and that's weaker bank lending. Goldman believes U.S. firms can withstand tighter credit conditions if banks are forced to issue fewer loans. So the strength is there. Now, consumer product giant Procter & Gamble is a bright spot, too. Its shares on the rise after a first quarter earnings coming in above expectations. The maker of Tide, Pampers and other products is also raising guidance. It's still able to pass along price hikes, it seems, to consumers. Now, if you have a drawer full of Allen keys, you probably own something from IKEA. The world's largest furniture retailer, famous for its Billy bookcases, has a presence in 31 countries, including the United States, where it's actually been for the last 38 years. The Swedish giant has decided now is the time to beef up its famous meatballs in the United States and is investing $2.2 billion in new stores and pickup sites, creating an estimated 2,000 new jobs. It's the company's biggest ever investment in a single nation. Now, part of the plan is to explore new opportunities in green energy, from geothermal technology to electric delivery trucks. And Javier Quinones is CEO and Chief Sustainability Officer at IKEA United States. Fantastic to have you on the show, sir. As I mentioned, this is a market that you've operated in for, what, almost 40 years. Why this size investment today? What do you see now that perhaps you didn't see in the past? Hi, Julia, and uh, Hi. thank you very much, first of all, for uh, having me uh, here. 
you know, uh, you you said it. Uh, we have 51 uh, stores uh, in the U.S. Uh, the U.S. is a country the size of a continent, so there is uh, still space uh, for uh, many more uh, IKEA uh, stores. We also know that uh, we've been 48 years already here, and it's been a fantastic uh, relation. We know that uh, uh, the U.S. consumers love us, and uh, we love uh, the U.S., uh, of course, and it is a priority market. So uh, we believe that uh, it is actually uh, right now the right moment to uh, uh, bring IKEA closer to many more people. Yeah, I mean, you said it's about boosting the omni-channel experience in the in the press release that you've talked about. I believe 900 pickup locations as well as boosting some of the stores. Talk to me about this and whether the customer that you see in the United States is the same as the customer I think that we're perhaps far more familiar with across Europe because geography here is a key factor. Part of the joy of, of IKEA is getting lost in the store and having a look round. This country's bigger. Getting to one is perhaps more challenging for, for some people at least. Uh, it is. Uh, it is absolutely uh, true. Uh, this is one of the big differences. I still remember when uh, my family was uh, in Europe and I was visiting one of the stores uh, in the West Coast. Our office is here in the East and it took me the same time to go uh, to visit the family than to visit uh, one of the stores. I was the first <laughs> rally. So uh, uh, with that, uh, of course, uh, uh, geography is, uh, is a big thing. Uh, as I said, we only have uh, 51. The uh, press release uh, says we're going to open uh, eight. I still believe this is only the beginning of bringing IKEA uh, closer to many more people. We are also uh, going to open uh, nine of what we call uh, uh, this uh, plan and order points. What this does is actually in a smaller format, going uh, faster and uh, being closer to where people live um, and uh, help them uh, in the preparation of some of the uh, more difficult uh, uh, planning of uh, their life at home dreams, right? Like a kitchen, like a living room, uh, like a bedroom. So these small formats uh, will be there to support in this uh, uh, planning phase. Then we will add uh, the collection, and the collection is uh, actually more in the convenience uh, side. So it will be easier for people to come, have an IKEA close where I can do my purchase. It, if it is in the store, if it is in one of these smaller formats, or if it is online, and then pick it, pick it up uh, in a closer uh, location to uh, where we are. On top you- of that, in our existing... Sorry, go ahead. No, please carry on. I was just getting overexcited. All right. Uh, well, me too. Uh, uh, <laughs> this is a very exciting, uh, of course, uh, announcement, right, that uh, we are doing. As you said, it's the biggest uh, we have actually done in the U.S. in our 40 years history. Uh, but a big part of this investment is also going to go to the existing stores that uh, we have. Um, I cannot imagine uh, a better place in the world than an IKEA store to get inspired about uh, home furnishings, right? So we will do much more of that, uh, but we will also add a new capability, which uh, is part of the fulfillment. And that's uh, also part of this investment where we will actually put uh, fulfillment capabilities in all our units so we can actually be closer to uh, people with the aim of uh, doing this in a much more affordable way uh, and in a, in a much more sustainable way as uh, our plan uh, for electric vehicles. And I can build on that, on that a little bit later if you want to. Yeah. Have you chosen the locations yet? Even just for those sort of nine um, 
design stores, planning stores? I mean, is it East Coast, West Coast? Are you going for, for Central America, perhaps a little bit more South? Have you chosen where and, and sort of what drives that decision beyond being close to people? Is it sort of economic incentives yeah. from state governments? What, what, what's driving that decision? Well, the starting point is uh, where people is, right? Uh, and that's where we uh, decide uh, uh, to go one place or another. It's too early to say uh, where exactly uh, we are going to be. We are right now in the phase of uh, evaluation. But we know that uh, with the time frames that we are giving us, uh, eight stores feels uh, quite uh, right. And we will uh, uh, explore any possibility. So right now we are not closing absolutely any uh, location. We actually announced uh, recently that uh, we are going to open our San Francisco uh, store in the heart of the city uh, at the end of spring, early summer. Uh, we have also announced uh, our Arlington uh, plan order in D.C. And we will see many more uh, announcements coming uh, as we go. I want to ask you as well, because obviously you are the chief sustainability officer as well, which I think is important about your buyback and resell operations. Just how big is that? Because that is something that's interesting to me. And, and I'm assuming you don't have to disassemble and reassemble in order to um, to, to sell it on. What kind of um, percentage of the initial value do you pay back to people? And do they get some kind of reward for swapping, coming back and buying something different? Because I do like this as trying to be more sustainable and utilizing what we had, even if we're buying new. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is uh, this makes me feel uh, very proud, actually. Mm. Right. Uh, it's one of the programs that we launched uh, a year ago and uh, actually we're now looking at expanding it. We launched uh, last week our ASIS uh, online service. So you can now buy some of these products uh, online uh, as well. So we are expanding it. Uh, it is a service that uh, uh, tries to, uh, uh, of course, uh, bring back uh, many of the products, giving a second life, uh, recycle them uh, in the uh, right way. And it's our aim to become 100% uh, circular in IKEA. It's part of our uh, long-term strategy. When in 2030, we have actually committed uh, to be uh, planet uh, positive or climate positive and 100% uh, 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 circular. So what... What this service does is you have been using uh, an IKEA product, you can bring it to the store, we will buy it from you and we will sell it at the same price to another family. If we need to do an adjustment, an upgrade or uh, anything, we will take care of that. And this is actually with the aim of taking care of the products that are uh, already out there. I have personally moved uh, many times. I still have my billy uh, from uh, many years that I've moved uh, <laughs> uh, sometimes. But I've also sold uh, uh, many of uh, uh, the, the products that uh, I cannot use anymore. And I'm so happy that they uh, go with another family, right? Did you assemble that yourself? Because you clearly did a good job. I, I do, do find I things do. start to wiggle after know. a while. I do. Oh, I, okay. Uh, you'll be surprised. <laughs> You're a pro. <laughs> I've assembled, actually, uh, my now, kitchen in... Uh, uh, in my uh, yeah, yeah, I do that uh, myself. Uh, you know, I started in IKEA many years ago. I work in the kitchen department. I assembled uh, uh, many of these kitchens when I was uh, planning them with customers on the search floor. And uh, I'm so passionate uh, about our product and uh, and uh, making them uh, alive. <laughs> I've got one more question: Per capita, do Americans or Europeans eat more meatballs? <laughs> You know, we are uh, actually uh, bringing more and more um, uh, plant-based uh, products. Oh, I think our meatballs are loved nice uh, all over the world. <laughs> yeah, uh, they are loved uh, all over the world. But, you know, more and more we are looking at uh, our uh, 
uh, options uh, in the restaurant. And um, this is a fantastic one. If you have not tried yet, I will actually uh, encourage you to do, to do it uh, and uh, see what the difference uh, you find. But actually, it has a 3% of the impact uh, in the planet uh, than the normal and regular meatball has. So I think more and more, we all uh, will enjoy uh, many more of these uh, more healthy products uh, in our restaurants. So you've lived up to your title of the Chief Sustainability Officer by pushing me towards the um, plant-based meatballs. Great to have you on. Hopefully. We'll speak again soon. Thank you. Take care. Excellent. Thank you very much. I appreciate Thank it. you. Okay, so to come on First Move. Critical efforts are underway to pull carbon from the sea and the air we breathe. CNN's Chief Climate Correspondent Bill Weir joins us to explain the whole story. Next. Welcome back. A health checkup for the world ahead of Earth Day tomorrow. And I have to say the diagnosis is pretty grim. From drought to floods and record low ice levels, the climate crisis took a heavy toll as it intensified in 2022. That's according to a new report from the World Meteorological Organization. Researchers noted that extreme weather affected tens of millions, drove food insecurity, boosted mass migration and cost billions of dollars in loss and damage. Quote, scientists say cutting back on planet cooking fossil fuels is no longer enough to reverse climate change. We must pull billions of tons of carbon dioxide from the air over the next 25 years. The problem is there are multiple ways to do this and they're all newly developed and still in the early stages. CNN's Cleve Chief Climate Correspondent Bill Weir took a look at some of those proposed solutions as part of CNN's new programme, The Whole Story, and he joins us now. Bill, fantastic to have you on the show. I have to say you had me at carbon-sucking kelp. I'm very excited, <laughs> but are you, are you more enthused about the opportunities and, and the potential technology that we can use to, to help the planet as a result of this show? I'm definitely more enthused. I mean, uh, if when I need to snap myself out of the stare into the middle distance over the peer-reviewed dread I read every day, I look to the innovators and the helpers and those trying to solve this massive problem, but I'm also humbled by the sheer size of it. You realize the challenge. We've kicked this can down the road for so long that now over a trillion tons of carbon must be pulled out of the sea and sky. And I got an amazing metaphor to help us sort of conceptualize this from a, a scientist fisherman in Maine. While he was studying robotic engineering at Dartmouth and Earth systems at Columbia, he realized a man-made monster was destroying his beloved Gulf of Maine, warming it up at a rate now faster than 95% of the rest of the world. It's a Godzilla. There's this thing out there and it's like ruining everything that we love, right? All the good stuff is getting ruined. All the stuff that's free and fun. It's burning forests down, it's stealing our fish. It's devastating our crops, it's hurting our farmers. Get mad and go, go kill that thing, right? And right there, on a dock in Maine, Marty's metaphor is a light bulb moment for me. A whole new way to think about a giant problem that began when people figured out how to move lots and lots of carbon, that stuff of ancient life, from the slow cycle locked in rock and under oceans into the fast cycle in the seawater and the sky. And we've moved so much carbon 
That monster now weighs a trillion tons, give or take, more than every living thing on Earth. So not only do we have to stop making the monster bigger, we have to catch it, chop it up, and bury the pieces back into the slow cycle with something called carbon removal. Removal's chopping Godzilla down. We got this 400 foot tall lizard and we're just chopping that thing down. That's what removal is. And so Marty uses uh, the natural earth systems, the cobbling, uh, carbon gobbling ability of kelp, big macro kelp, and he builds uh, rafts made of bio waste uh, and then bits of limestone, which help help with the acidification of the ocean, like an antacid for the ocean. And he's floating these off uh, in the North Atlantic off of Iceland now as that kelp grows up to two feet a day. It, the weight of it will then sink down to the bottom of the ocean where that carbon is locked away. He hopes to scale this up on a grand scale. He also works with oysters, which are big carbon uh, devouring little machines that nature has designed for us. And I found all kinds of ideas, both biomimicry that uses earth systems, but new machines that pull this, this stuff out of the sea and sky and pump it below. But we have to pay for this. This is a, a trillion dollar industry nobody's talking about. It is essentially building the petrochemical industry in reverse, big oil in reverse, uh, to try to lock that carbon Godzilla away. But, uh, a lot of this innovation is just now being uncorked, and it can be terrifying or exhilarating, depending on how you look at it, Julia. Yeah, we need the money to scale it, to your point. Um, it's clearly going to be a must-watch, but when can we watch it? Uh, this is Sunday night, uh, 8 o'clock Eastern. Okay. Uh, on the whole story with Anderson Cooper. It's a date. Bill Weir, great to have you on. Thank, Thank you so you. much. To South Korea now and an outpouring of grief over the K-pop star Moon Bin, who died this week. Police have said they believe the 25-year-old took his own life. Paula Hancock takes a look at the pressures on those in the Korean entertainment industry. Moon Bin was a K-pop success story, 25 years old and popular. A member of the boy band Astro on a world tour with bandmate Sanha. His suspected suicide Wednesday shocked friends and fans, but raised questions once again about the pressure of being inside South Korea's intense K-pop bubble. Celebrities are stressed out by the public. They have to maintain uh, their popularity. So they are more vulnerable to anxiety, depression and panic symptoms. K-pop is based on highly choreographed, perfected images and dance moves, a polished face to the world. Known for long hours, intense competition with just a fraction making it, and in recent years, a number of high-profile suicides. Korean-American singer that, Brian Ju no, admitted mental health pressures several attacks. years ago. Don't he was one of the first to speak publicly. Because talking about it is just not something that a lot of people do in this country. And I think that's the main reason why, and that's how, that's why a lot of K-pop singers feel like they're alone. K-pop star Sully took her own life in 2019. A former member of girl group FX, she too spoke publicly about mental health issues. Six weeks later, her friend, singer and actress Gu Hara, died by suicide. Both admitted pressures from cyberbullying. Moonbin himself spoke of struggling just 11 days before his death, though the reason behind his suspected suicide is not known. I have something to confess to fans. It's been quite hard. It's been hard and I tried not to show it, but I think I showed it since the tour and I'm sorry about that. It's the job I chose, so I need to bear with it. Korean entertainment agencies now say they prioritize the physical and mental health of their artists.
South Korea has also seen a former president and a Seoul mayor take their own life. But it's not a problem that is confined to those in the public eye. The suicide rate here in South Korea is one of the highest in the world. It is the leading cause of death for those in their teens, 20s and 30s. Paula Hancock's CNN Seoul. Okay, let's move on. Also today, Canada is known for a lot of things. Hockey, maple syrup, and of course it's moose. But it's not just a moose on the loose in the Great White North. Paula Newton reports on a brazen unsolved heist at Canada's largest airport. It is still quite a mystery as to what unfolded at Toronto's International Airport on Monday evening. Now, police said that, in fact, a cargo container about five feet squared was loaded off an airplane. They're not telling us which airline was loaded into a holding warehouse. From there, police say it was illegally taken. Apparently, this container they described as high value, at least $15 million worth of valuables. Some of it was gold, some of it higher valuable articles. They're not saying what. In fact, police aren't saying too much of anything. They are not telling us which airline was involved. They're not telling us if there was any surveillance footage. They're not telling us who owns this cargo. And all they will say is that this is the early stage of the investigation and that they want to explore all avenues. What was really interesting here was that they said that they don't even know if the cargo remains in the country. Now, no one else is saying much about this, including airport officials. They say that this is an open investigation and they do not want to tamper with that. Having said that, this is quite a heist that someone could pull off. Um, And at this point, police do not seem to have concrete leads. What is glaring here is that they did not ask for the public's help. So you're wondering what kind of uh, investigative avenues they are going down, but extraordinary. And police themselves said that, look, this is rare, an isolated incident. And at this point in time, uh, they have no suspects and no one has been arrested. Paul Newton, CNN, Ottawa. Hmm. And finally, if your name is Kyle, then the city of Kyle, Texas, needs you. It's trying to break the Guinness World Record for the world's largest same-name gathering. The place to be is Lake Kyle Park for the Kyle Fair on May 21st. And your first name must be spelt K-Y-L-E. No variations allowed. The record apparently currently held by the city of Bosnia and Herzegovina, which brought together more than 2,300 Ivans in 2017. I googled. Apparently there's 21,129 Kyles in Texas. Your state needs you. That's it for the show. Connect the World is up next. Have a great weekend. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.